couple of years ago, there was a, a seminary in Australia that was short on cash. And so what they were calling the students to do was come together for something bigger than themselves and to, to clean the place. They couldn't afford anymore to clean the seminary. And so they had put out kind of a list of, hey, we need dusting, we need vacuuming, and as they would say it, we need some folks to clean the loos. For us, that is the, the restrooms. So everything was signed up for except for the loos, the restrooms. Nobody signed up for that. Yet each day the students came to school and they found that these things were spotless. And so one student said, you know what, I, something's going on here. student got up early. I don't know if they have Starbucks in Australia, maybe. But he got a Starbucks and he went early to the seminary. And at 6 in the morning he's walking around the seminary and he hears some rustling in the loo. And there's the principal or the leader of the seminary on his hands and knees scrubbing toilets. See, nobody else had signed up for it, but he knew it needed to be done and it was a model example of someone in leadership setting the example for the rest of the school. And Today we're going to look at another leader uh, who didn't think um, humbling himself was beneath who he was. And we're going to see that it was it was Jesus who humbled himself. Much about what we sang about today. Today we're going to see, and if you see it on the back of your bulletin, the glory of God in the humility of His Son. It breaks down into two parts there. Uh, a rhythm is the idea of Paul's exhortation comes and it's rhythmic. That Philippians 2, 1-11 through is very well written. And 5-11 through is a poem. If you have the New International Version, you actually see it in your Bible uh, set apart as poetry. And so we're going to look at those two aspects of this piece of Scripture today, that we want to live humbly for the joy of others as the servant king modeled and enables us. That one commentator said what we looked at last week when we talked about worthy citizens was that we live corporately and courageously for the Gospel. Today we're going to learn about living selflessly for the Gospel. In the, first, in the first four verses, the main idea is that we live humbly for others, for the joy of others. That some believe these first um, sentences are, are an implicit call to the Trinity because it matches much of what goes on in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, that you see the grace of Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Whether that's the case here, if you just listen to it, you hear Paul's writing in very uh, rhythmic terms, so it's easy for us to remember. 2, 1 through 4 says this, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, or make my joy complete, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and intent on one purpose. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves or count others better than yourself. Consider others more important. Let each of you not look out only for his own interest, but also the interests of others. What I want to show you from these first four verses are two principles we can walk away with today, but I want to set it in the context of, first let's talk about selfishness. Before we talk about selflessness, 
let's talk about selfishness. Tell me if you agree with these three statements. The joy of selfish people, there's a joy that's lacking. And that selfish people look out, like America would say, look out for number one. And that selfish people are bad role models. They lack true joy. They look out for number one. And they're not very good role models. We agree on that? Because that's the context through which Paul paints in these 11 verses something entirely different, something radical, something that turns this culture upside down. Verse 1, he says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, or as one translation says, Therefore. And if your translation doesn't say therefore, you need to put it there. Because it is a switch from, from 1, 27 through 30 to 2, 1 through 4. What Paul is saying here is, if we're going to make it and struggle well to advance the gospel, that if we're going to be immovable, interdependent, and unintimidated by culture, therefore, these things have to happen. And he says it in a rhythmic way, all these if statements and then a then statement, to show us if these things are true, this will happen. And Paul is surely saying, if you have this, Philippians, and I would say if we have this Eagle Bible Church, then this will be true. For example, if there would be some men who would give up some shut-eye on a Sunday morning to come and set up the gym, it will become a sanctuary. If some men will do that, then the gym becomes a sanctuary. I would say that because if this is true, and it is, you're sitting here, then the gym becomes a sanctuary. And so Paul says the same thing here. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, if there's any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, that if there's any consolation from being united with Jesus, if there's any reassurance for His love that He showed us, and if there's any participation of the Spirit, there's that idea of partnership again. It takes us back to chapter 1. That if there's the Holy Spirit working in our lives, both individually and as a community, there will be this affection and sympathy that does something. It says, if you do this, then make my joy complete, or complete my joy by being of the same mind, being in full accord and intent on one purpose. Paul's joy would be complete if the Philippians were unified together in the midst of their circumstances. And so selflessness completes the joy of others. It, it gets outside of our own world and it thinks about other people. Selflessness completes the joy of others. It takes a step back and it doesn't um, ignore what's going on in our own life, but it gets outside of our own life and looks to complete the joy of others. And this happens if we're of the same mind, having the same love, united in spirit and intent on one purpose. So when it says like being like-minded, it doesn't mean that we all have to think alike. That is, we all have to want to dress a certain way or act a certain way. This is not about uniformity. This is about unity. And so there's a certain common theme that, that governs our life. It's the gospel. It's something bigger than ourselves. Having the same love, it's that reciprocal love for one another. It's not just one way. Living in harmony, united in one spirit, each part of the body working together, and intent on one purpose. 
not only are we thinking like Christ, we're intent on something. We know why we gather together. But none of this was going to happen with the Philippians, which was, as many commentators think, a very healthy church, but there was something going on inside the church. And Paul had, to, had addressed external conflict last week. Here he talks about the internal conflict. And this is serious business. Listen to Proverbs 6. There are six things the Lord hates. Seven of them are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies. And do you know what he ends with? One who sows discord among brothers. It's very serious. It's an abomination to the Lord. And so Paul is basically saying to the Philippians, which is being said to us, we cannot be of any value externally if we are not united together internally. If we want to change the world, we've got to begin with ourselves. And so selflessness gets outside its own box and completes the joy of other people. And selflessness considers others more important. It considers others more important. It says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, or do nothing from selfishness or vain conceit. There's an old word, I don't know if it's in the King James or not, but it talks about vain glory. Do nothing from selfishness or vain glory. It's the idea of this glory is quickly passing. Do nothing. It doesn't say when you live your life, uh, 51% of the time you, you look out for other people. It says do nothing, absolutely nothing from rivalry. That word is actually used in chapter 1 where he said some guys preach Christ out of rivalry. They're doing it selfishly. And so what he says here is do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but in humility, or better yet, with humility of mind, consider others more important than yourselves. This is huge. I firmly believe, by the power of the gospel, if we at Eagle Bible Church, if every church in this valley, every church in the nation, would live out Philippians 2, 3, and 4, the world would begin to change. Do nothing, absolutely nothing, from selfishness or empty conceit. That's the negative. And so Paul says, let me give it to you positively. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interest of others. The problem is not having different opinions. The problem comes when we insist on our own opinion. The problem is not having desires of our own. The problem comes when we insist on our own desires. It will wreck a marriage. It will wreck a parent and child relationship. It will wreck businesses. It will wreck them when we cling to our supposed rights. Now let me say something here because it, it, this runs rampant. In the church, this runs... It's just... Gross. Humility does not mean you think less of yourself. It just means you think of yourself less. Did you catch that? little word play. You don't think less of yourself. 
I'm tired of I'm a worm theology. Self-deprecation is an assault on God's creation. You're made in the image of God. So it's not that you think of yourself less. It's you think... Uh, it's not that you think less of yourself, it's that you think of yourself less. Here's two verses. Let another praise you and not your own mouth. Proverbs 27.2 And here's a better one. For by the grace of God given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. So there's the idea of not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less It's Jesus. Jesus didn't go around and say, woe is me, I'm a worm theology. He didn't. He considered others more important than himself. He thought soberly, as with sound judgment. And so that's what we're called to do, is selflessness completes the joy of others. It's looking outside yourself and saying, how can I help this person and encourage them in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ today? And then, considering others more important. How can I value what somebody else is doing today? When I wake up, is my immediate thought, and it isn't sometimes, so hear this, how can I serve my wife today? I wake up. I've got to do this, this, this. I've got to meet with him, him, him. Oh, yeah. No, let's, let's flip that. Let's, let's pray for each of, of, of us in our own lives. How can I serve my wife today? How can I consider her more important than myself? How can I consider my children more important than myself? Then, outside the family, how can I consider other people that I'm meeting with more important than myself? When I'm walking up to the door at Yeti's, how can I consider, open the door. Great morning to you. Somebody's going to the line. No problem. Go ahead. How can I consider others more important than myself? And this earthly behavior... I assure you, is empowered and begins with a heavenly mindset. And here's your third aspect. Selflessness is characterized in Christ. So we move from this rhythm, if there is any of this, if, 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 then make my joy complete, bye, 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 to this poem. To this poem. The servant king not only modeled for us, but he enables us to live this way. And here's his attitude in verse 5. Have this mind, that is a humble mind, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, or which was in Christ Jesus. That is his attitude. He is a humble man. He was the perfect person to model humility. And you're thinking, how? Very good. You have a V on your handout. Number one, this is what he did. Before there was time, and I've called this the victorious Christian life because it's often considered this mystical, unreachable, how do I live the victorious Christian life? It's not that hard. It's being humble. And so the first thing that Jesus did was before there was time in verse 6, Jesus, who was though in the form of God, that is the very nature of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus was in the form of God and He didn't consider His deity something to be clung to. 
He saw it as a way to minister to others. Verse 7 says, But he made himself nothing, or he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Some men want to say this is Jesus who gave up his deity. He was no, when he came to earth, he was no longer divine, but we know this is simply not true. Twice in the Gospels, when Jesus is uh, debating with the Pharisees, it says Jesus, knowing their hearts, another way you could have said that is Jesus, who is omniscient. Jesus told Pilate right before his death, my kingdom is not of this world. And so he did not get rid of his deity. He clothed himself in humanity. That's Christmas. So you have verse 6, before there was time. And then you have Christmas. That God became a man, literally was a baby, and was raised, and he lived a perfect life. Sinless. It says in Hebrews that he lived a sinless life, and he has sympathy for us who, who are sinners but He is without sin. Hebrews 1.3 says He is the exact imprint of God. He is the very nature of God. And right now He upholds the world. But He didn't... All that deity of Jesus, He didn't cling to. I'm not going to let go of it. The New Living Translation said He didn't cling to His rights. Christ saw equality with God as an opportunity to serve the world. And Romans tells us he's making us just like Jesus. Christ saw his equality with God, that is, his very nature, as an opportunity to serve the world. Jesus literally gave up only one who has God-given rights, right? He literally gave that up for a certain period of time to serve others. Mark 10.45 says, I did not come to be served but to serve. And how is He going to do that? To give my life as a ransom for many. That He he gave up. He didn't get rid of, He just gave up. He didn't cling to His rights. Gentlemen, if you have small kids, you understand this. It is the Father entering the child's world. Men, you need to do this. If you have small children. Tea parties and sword fights are divine things. I don't give up who I am, right? As a father and as a, a man, when I get down, right? And I sit. Oh, thank you for the cup of tea. It's good. Did you make it yourself? Or when I get down and I grab a, a hammer and it becomes a gun and, and he's got the sword or he's got a little slingshot, I don't give up who I am to play David and Goliath. I don't give up who I am to move wooden trucks on the little piece of carpet that's a road. I enter His world. And men, you are doing this. I know. I've seen some of you. You're doing this. You're entering your children's worlds. Far greater for a father to enter the world of his child is the God of the universe as Jesus Christ the Son to enter our world. Right? Far greater than a father to 
pretend to be enjoying, well, he does enjoy it, but to pretend to be drinking tea is the, the creator of the universe to enter our world. Uh, the media went crazy when our president, when he was a president-to-be, um, went to the, po- the booth to m- vote for himself, right? Here was the chief citizen-to-be setting the example for everyone to follow. I'm going to vote. He wanted to get everybody else to vote. He's setting the example. Well, here's the chief citizen of heaven showing us how to live. And not just showing us and modeling us, as you'll see in a minute, enabling us to live. That's what happened at Christmas. And he did great things, but he never exploited his power. In fact, he at times withheld his power. If, if you're here, turn these rocks into bread if you're hungry. Man should not live on bread alone. He stuck to the Word of God. He healed the sick. He cured the disease. He opened the eyes of the blind. He used his omniscience to lead the woman at the well to the living water. You remember that? So how many husbands do you have? Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. So he guided people with his power. He served others with his power. And then, as we just sang about, he came from heaven to earth, and then he went to the cross, and from the cross to the grave, there is the bottom. There's Easter. That he not only lived a perfect life, but he died a purposeful death. I cannot stand scholars who get bored in their quiet times and just tell us that Jesus was a good example. He died a very purposeful death. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions, adoption as sons. God had no plan B. Jesus died for a reason. And He didn't die for His own sin. Isaiah 53, 4-6 says, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God. And was cru- He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon Him the chastisement that brought us peace. And by His stripes we are healed. All of us, like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each and every one of us to his own way. But he has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The perfect God lived a perfect life, died a perfect and purposeful death so that we might be with God forever. His humility, have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus, that he humbled himself, was not in futility. He did not die a meaningless death as some nice example. He was the substitutionary atonement for your sins and mine. So that, as of today, verse 9, verse 8, being found in the human form, he humbled himself, become obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, as we sang earlier, the name that is above every name. 
He sits right now at the right hand of God. He upholds the universe by His power. That's where He is today. In 10 and 11, this is what's going to happen in the future. So that, therefore God highly exalted Him. He sits at the right hand of God. So that, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, or better translation, every knee will bow. In heaven, and on earth, and under the earth. Basically, everything will bow to Jesus. The angels in heaven will bow to Jesus. Those who are living today, if He returns today, will bow to Jesus. Those who have died and gone before us will bow to Jesus. And every single tongue in the world will confess that Jesus is Lord. Every single person in the world, believer or non-believer, will confess one day Jesus is Lord. And you know what? Here's the beauty of His humility. The verse does not end right there. I've often stopped right there. But Jesus has always and only been in submission to God the Father. That every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord. Why? To the glory of God the Father. The glory of God and the humility of Jesus. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And if you're here today, there's just two types of people. You either don't know Jesus, and one day you're going to bow to Him. And it won't be a happy kneeling. Your pride keeps you right now from bowing your knee and giving your entire life to Jesus Christ who is the King of Kings who is the Lord of Lords who rules the world whether you like it or not or you're here today and you know the Savior but like me you struggle with selfishness you're not modeling Jesus and I say to you today As it's been said in this book, I'm still in a line right out of this book. Your pastor is a proud man seeking humility by the grace of God. This is the chief sin of every person in the world, believer or non-believer. We really do think we're better on our own. We really do think we've got it all figured out. But to live the victorious Christian life, we have to go back and see that the one who never had to give up anything, but didn't see equality with God, something to be grasped, went to the lowest of lows. Not that he just became a man, but he became a servant. That literally says he became a slave, a bondservant. And that he didn't just die a death, after ripe old age of 95, it was actually 33, and just pass on to be with the Lord. He died death on the cross, the most gruesome, heinous death at that time, and therefore God has highly exalted Him. And that someday in the future, all of us will bow. And so it is my prayer that many more people would bow 
in complete joy, this is my king. Not, oh. And those of you that are here today and know the Lord Jesus Christ, understand this. You and I only become humble by the grace of God. You and I only become less proud people by becoming humble people by the transforming grace of God. Look at verse 6 of chapter 1. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Look at 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. How? For it is God who works in you, both into will and to work His good pleasure. That does not negate our responsibility, that only shows that we become humble people who serve others by the grace of God. More on that next week. And so, there's the victorious. It's not a mystical thing. This is the essence of Christianity. Humility is the essence of Christianity. So what do we do? We live in such a, how do we live in such a way that we die without regret? Dying well means that we live for the joy of others as the servant king modeled for us and presently enables us. So here's the question. Theoretical. Everybody can answer yes to this. Am I willing to die so that someone else may live? Just like Jesus. Everybody say, yeah, I'd, I'd be doing it. Yeah, if my, somebody came in the house, I'm willing to put my life down so that my wife and children may live. It's the theoretical question everybody, yeah. Okay, here's the practical question. Am I willing to sacrifice my rights, privileges, time, so that others may gain from my temporary loss? Am I willing to put aside my ideas and consider the person next to me, wife, children, co-workers, church members, neighbors, better than myself? 1 Corinthians 10, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. We usually stop there. Let, us, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Can I just encourage you just, it's happening here. It's happening. I would say, sell still the more. There are people in this congregation who have made the right decisions based upon their concern for the greater good of this church. So, thank you. And there are people here giving up their time and their treasures and their talents to serve others. And I would say with Paul, excel still more. Let's do so more and more. Let's not, as we will see in a couple of weeks, just bank on, you know, I used to be, did a whole lot of unselfish things in the past. I'm just going to ride that wave right into eternity. Let's excel still the more. How do we do this? Very practical. You've heard this before. I like it. It helps me figure out an order in my mind. You've heard Jesus, others, yourself, Acronym, live humbly for the joy of others. How do you do this? Jesus, He is supreme. Others, they're more significant. 
and yourself. That you're just a simple person in love with a sovereign God trying to serve others for their joy. It's not easy, is it? Because every the flesh says, look out for number one. Just, just go take... Judge, you really just need to go spend a little bit more time and do your own thing. No, actually, Judge, you need to go play, play with your kids. You need to go talk to your wife. Oh, if I could just get one more little thing, then, then I'll be where I need to be and then I can effectively serve others. And then once you do that, guess what happens? If I can just get one more little, some little more time to judge, a little more judge time, then I can really serve others. And then when that happens, just, just, just one. And you get a further and further away from what is central. I need to honor my Lord every single day. And then I say, how may I serve you? And then I need to do tea parties and instruct them in the ways of the Lord. Then I need to go to my neighbors. And then this church, then to the community. So what I want us to do now before we take communion is I want us to think about this and I have a song of response that we just first and foremost, before we go serve others, let's just praise the King. Because He is the King of kings. And if you're here today and you've never placed your trust in Jesus Christ, I strongly encourage you today to do that. That if you've never bowed your knee and if you think, I'll just give it a little more time until I figure it out, here's what you need to figure out. Jesus Christ rules the world. You're a sinner in need of a Savior. And if you were to die right now, you would go to hell and not one person in this room that knows the Lord wants that for you, ever. That's the gospel. And then that gospel will enable us. The God who began that good work in us will continue to work it out. That we will work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing it is God who works on us for His good pleasure. So let's sing together now. And then once that song is finished, if the men who will come and lead us in communion would do so.